Ezekiel chapter 16. It is the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, which is why we're doing just one, 63 verses, I believe, if I remember, yep. It is also, in my opinion, the most provocative parable in the Bible. What we come to tonight is uncompromising in its honesty. And I I believe that this story is unparalleled in Scripture. If the MPAA were to give it a rating, it would likely be rated R for mature content. In the Mishnah, that book of Jewish law, the first of the Talmud, in the Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus said, this chapter should not even be read or translated in public. All due respect, we need to read it aloud. And we need to pour over the words here and have this embedded in our hearts. It's here because God wants us to read it. It is here because the Lord wants His people to hear it. To this day, when Cheryl wants me to get something down that's on a high shelf in our kitchen, she says, Farm boy? Fetch me that pitcher. (laughs) And I... Dutifully respond as you wish. If you've seen The Princess Bride, you know that famous statement, as you wish, after a while you begin to realize, and and the narrator of the story says, it really means, I love you. The story of The Princess Bride could could be a title for this chapter uh, if it didn't get so harsh. But it is a story of a princess bride. Actually, it starts back further than that. It begins as the story of an abandoned waif. An abandoned waif who is saved and loved and becomes an adored wife only to become an abhorrent whore. And I hope that word is offensive to you because it is to me. And it should be. Because what we're going to see in this chapter is God at His most offended. As He sees, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, But this story unfold and he lays it out for, I believe, all people to hear and understand. As we begin, note specifically to whom the Lord sent this message. Verse 1 tells us, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. The birth here is that of Jerusalem personified. The message, the story, the parable is a parable of personified Jerusalem because this is not the historical origin of Israel. And please understand that. Israel does not come from the Amorite and the Hittite. The people of Israel come from Abraham, who was not an Amorite, and Sarah, who was not a Hittite. They were Mesopotamians from Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 11 and 12 tells us that. But of all the Canaanite nations, the Amorites and the Hittites were the most powerful and the most corrupt. They were the two that drove all the rest. And they were the two that parented, according to God's word, parented Jerusalem. Jerusalem was born of the Amorite 
and the Hittite, which was in the hands of the Jebusites by the time David himself came around to conquer. So why is this a message to Jerusalem, and is it then an indictment as we go forward of the Canaanite peoples? No, it's not. It is an indictment of the Jews who claim Jerusalem as their own, because this city will ultimately bear all the corrupt characteristics of its parentage. God refers back to the Amorite and the Hittite because now at this point in Israel's history, the very character of Jerusalem looks so much like it did back in the days of mom and dad, the Hittite and the Amorite. And so the parable is directed to the city. But why the city? Why single out the city, which has its birth in the Canaanite peoples, why single out Jerusalem, the city, rather than just talk to the Jewish people directly? And there's an easy answer for that. It's because Jerusalem has always been the very heart of the Jewish people. Even in all of their years of dispersion and captivity, Jerusalem was at the heart of the Jewish people who would say every Passover next year in Jerusalem, who longed to go back to the land, specifically back to the city Jerusalem. Psalm 137, verse 5, spoken from captivity, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Of all the cities on earth, of all the locations, Zion, Jerusalem, is the heartbeat of the Jewish people. You might understand then why even today the modern state of Israel does not want to divide uh, Jerusalem again. Why Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli Knesset does not want Jerusalem to be part of the peace talks with the Palestinians. They don't even want it on the table to give up even half of Jerusalem because it is at the heart of the Jewish people. Jerusalem, that that city that has been conquered multiple times, maligned, abused, neglected, but has always remained glorious to the Jews. And by the way, Jerusalem has only really ever been glorious when the Jews had control over it. In its long history, the glory days of Jerusalem were only when it was under Jewish control. That understood, there's one more thing we need to remember before we go on, and that is, though this is spoken to Jerusalem, personified as a picture then of all of the Jewish people, These things, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10.11, happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we always have to be careful not to sit there and say, yeah, wow, the Jewish people did this, the Jewish people did that. God is speaking to His people in such and such a way. We need to immediately pull ourselves into it and say, what they're hearing, I need to hear. What is spoken from the heart of God to the heart of His people needs to then be spoken to my heart and to yours. And so I ask you, encourage you to take this parable personally because the parallels here are unmistakable to our own lives. We begin, number one, with the abandoned waif. The abandoned waif. Verse four. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. 
Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live! Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live! Now we start with a brutal picture, a graphic picture here, of a newborn infant squirming in blood, thrown out into a field. The umbilical cord still attached. And it speaks obviously of Israel as unclean in their very nature, as miserable, as vulnerable. In fact, it's yet another parable similar to chapter 15 that we looked at on Sunday, the parable of the useless vine. We go now from the parable of the useless vine to the parable of the, of the sinfully, naturally bloody infant, unwanted, uncared for, cast out in the world. But the picture here could be any one of us. In fact, it can be any human being squirming in their sin nature. I find it interesting that the navel cord, the umbilical cord, is not cut. What does that imply? It implies that you're still connected to things of the past. You're still connected to your mother's sins. Israel, in this case, still connected to the sins of the Canaanites, still playing them out. They didn't cut the cord to move on. But they're still connected. Not washed. Not rubbed with salt. That indicates not past uncleanness or clinging to things of the past and old sins, but current sin. A current state of uncleanness. Rubbed with salt. You might wonder about that. We don't rub babies with salt these days. But salt was used as an antiseptic in biblical times. And so the idea was to get the uncleanness off and to wash the child. But this child is not washed. Connected to old sin, unclean in its current sin, and of course abandoned and abhorred from its very inception. What that does is speak to us of the grievous need that Israel had to be found and to be saved. They needed someone to come along and be their Savior. And so do we all. We all begin in this same place. And so we see this mess of an infant squirming in its bloody, sinful, natural state, and the Lord passes by and says, Live. Live. That's how He rolls. See? He sees someone vulnerable. He sees someone awash in the sins of the past, connected to the sins of the present, cast out by the world, and God doesn't turn a blind eye. God doesn't go, Ooh, I can't deal with that. God says, live. He would say that to any sinner today, no matter how grievous the sin, He would turn to them and say, live. Live. Colossians 2.13 tells us, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. God looks and sees every abandoned waif, every cast off child, susceptible and squirming in sin. And he says, live. And both of those two lives in verse 6 are in the imperative form of the Hebrew. In other words, they are as a command. God looks down and says, I command you to live. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 tells us God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But note this, in Ephesians 2 verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
There's a key there. All the grace is from God. All the gifting is from God. All the life is from God. But He says it comes through faith. That's your part. And that's mine. Believe me for it. Believe in me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Yes, Lord, I believe you. Yes, Lord, when you command me to live, I believe you can make me live. And God says, live. And so the question for us is, will we? Will we, by faith, take hold of the life that God has offered us? Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so God looks at the abandoned wave and calls out, live. Verse 7, I made you numerous like the plants of the field. And then you grew up, became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And what he's describing here in verse 7 now is there is a growth to physical maturity. But not spiritual maturity. Not cleanness, not yet. The baby that God said live clearly heard Him, now wants to live, and so grows up into a mature woman, physically, with the ability, I believe, to begin to sense right from wrong and to make an informed decision of faith. But note this, there is still blood in her nakedness. She still lacks cleansing. And she lacks covering. Look at verse 8. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. We talked about this as Boaz covered Ruth. It's that sign of coming under the protective covering now of a husband, a husband offering that. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Quickly, Bible students, what, what kind of covenant was that? Conditional or unconditional? It's unconditional. Don't confuse this with the covenant of Moses at Mount Sinai, which is the only conditional covenant God ever made with Israel. This is not talking about the conditional covenant. This is going back to the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15, which is unconditional. I, he says, entered into a covenant with you. He didn't say we entered into a covenant together. I spread my skirt over you in your nakedness. But Rick, you said she's still covered with that blood from birth? Yeah. Look at verse 9. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you. That's astounding. (laughs) I mean, even the picture, the thought of someone fully grown, fully physically mature, but still covered in the blood of their birth from childhood. And you see, that's sin. And what the world doesn't recognize is the world says you grow up, you become mature, you become intelligent in worldly things, and you're good to go. No, you're still covered in the blood of your birth. You still have the blood of your physical birth on you. It's got to be washed off. And he says, I washed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin. Some of your King James versions, if you're reading that, says badger skin. It's not badger. It's porpoise. It it could be seal. It's a tough leather skin. Put that on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril. Cool. 
earrings in your ears. And a beautiful crown on your head, thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth, yea, fine flour, honey, and oil, and you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, the princess bride. <laughs> the once abandoned waif suddenly becomes the adored wife, and it is all by his doing. And this does speak of a princess bride. This is, this is the adornment of a queen here. It's not just anyone who comes along and becomes married and, and has this kind of treatment. This is royal treatment. Now, geopolitically, you could look at Jerusalem as a backwater town that rose out of its podunk place under the Jebusite power, that rose in prominence to the glory under King David and ultimately under Solomon. But this isn't geopolitical. This is pure romance. And I believe the Lord would have us see it that way. He says back there in verse 9, I bathed you with water. The Jew who hears that would think immediately of the mikvah bath, that ceremonial cleansing, which is a full immersion, by the way. And some of you Bible students know when you go into Jerusalem today, you can see the mikvah baths there by the Temple Mount. Whereas the people came to go up to temple, they would go into those baths, down the steps into the bath, fully submerged, coming back up the steps on the other side. Now if it was me, I'd probably want to be one of the first ones in that bath in the morning and not later in the afternoon. But you know what I mean here. The Jewish mikvah bath, that picture of being bathed with water, but again, you all know that was a precursor to baptism. That Jesus took hold of the mikvah, that ceremony, and He said, I want to use this for a deeper meaning, not just a ceremonial cleansing so you're religiously pure for a certain event. I want you, when you come to Me in faith, to go into the waters of baptism, to be immersed as though you're being buried, to be raised to walk in a newness of life as I was raised. And that event cleanses you, not just as a washing of dirt or blood from the body, but is a cleansing of a pure conscience, a way to say to the world, this outwardly is what God did inwardly the moment I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. I bathed you with water, says the Lord. And again, the idea is that the blood of the old physical birth is finally fully washed off by the pure water of the spiritual birth. John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Ephesians 5, 25, tells husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. I bathed you, He says. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Hebrew writer, writer there is tapping into two things. The idea of the sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, on Yom Kippur, that would speak of a cleansing for the whole nation, an inward cleansing, a spiritual cleansing. But then the washing of pure water of the entire body, showing that outward cleansing of what God has done on the inside. I bathed you with water. He says, I anointed you with oil, again in verse 9. 
I anointed you with oil. Psalm 23, verse 5. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows, David says. And for the Jewish person, the the anointing with oil spoke of royalty. It spoke of, of community, of connection. It spoke of calling. For the Christian, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. And nothing less. I anointed you with oil. Are you tying yourself into this? Jesus saying, I bathed you. I anointed you with oil, my spirit. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty one, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He says, I put sandals on your feet, there in verse ten. Put sandals on your feet, sandals of porpoise skin or perhaps seal skin. And and it's interesting, it's it's a very tough, thick leather, and some Bedouins still make their shoes out of porpoise or seal skins today. And this would be a a royal thing to do, probably a a color purple, a purplish leather shoe that spoke, again, of, of royalty. But these feet are being prepared to go. The feet of the people Israel, as God says, I put sandals on your feet. This is Israel, remember, whose highest calling was to be a light to the nations. Not to hold what God gave them into themselves, but to shine it and to share it and to bring the truth of the beauty of the Lord to all the people of the world. And they didn't do it. No, instead they hold up in the land and began to become more and more inward. God says, but I, but I put sandals on your feet. Way back at the beginning. And understand, once you've been washed, once you've received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God puts sandals on your feet to go and to tell people what He did for you. And this is early on in the process. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. And of course you know Paul quotes that in Romans 10 verse 15. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. I want nice feet. That's ugly, gnarled, but I want some nice feet. If you want to have beautiful feet, you take the news. You be the one knocking on the door bringing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul even says, Ephesians 6.15, That He has shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So I sandaled your feet to go. He says, I clothed you, this is interesting, with embroidered cloth. Verse 10. He says, I wrapped you with fine linen. What does fine linen speak of in the Bible? Righteousness. Bingo. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, Revelation 19 tells us. I wrapped you with with fine linen, but it also says silk. Embroidered cloth, fine linen, silk. It's all this beautiful picture of royalty. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In Revelation 19, it was given her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What about the silk? Note this. It's the only time in the entire Bible the word silk is used. Twice. 
here in verse 10, and then again it's repeated in verse 13. And you won't find this Hebrew word anywhere else in Scripture. Only here. Silk. Meshi. Meshi. So if you're writing that out, M-E-S-H-I. Meshi. Used just twice. It is a very rare word. And they think, they're not even specifically sure, but they think it just has to do with a royal, um, very expensive kind of cloth. Which is why they say silk, because as they read it in context, well, it has to have something to do with this fine linen, this embroidered cloth. It's something in that category. And so the translators, they just use the word silk. It's rare. You can only find this rare clothing in one place. Does Mashi remind you of another Hebrew word? Mashiach? How interesting. Because Mashiach is the only one, Messiah is the only one who can bring you the kind of clothing that we're talking about in this romance relationship with the Lord. What do you mean, Rick? Galatians 3.27 says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Better than silk is the clothing which only Christ Jesus provides. He says, I adorned you with ornaments, verses 11 and 12, gold and silver bracelets, necklace, earrings, nose ring, and a golden crown, and again, the gifts given to a prince's bride. A bride fitted to be queen. And they speak here of of Israel's royalty as chosen by the Lord God. Israel, the, the name, Sarah plus L, Sarah, Meaning princess in the feminine, prince in the masculine, El being God, prince of God. The name Israel given to Jacob, whose name originally meant, anyone know? Heel catcher. (laughs) Jacob, whose name was heel catcher. Because he was grabbing on to Esau's heel as Esau was being born first, and Jacob's grabbing his heels going, no, I want to go first. So he gets named little heel catcher. And God says, you're not going to be the one coming behind. You're not going to be the one grasping for some kind of place in the world. No, you're going to be the prince of God. And so, no wonder he describes his princess. And you and I are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, 1 Peter 2.9 so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. But that's not where it stops. Verse 13, He goes on and says, Yea, fine flour, honey, and oil. Fine flour, speaking of the sustaining bread of the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 tells us. Honey, speaking obviously of the sweetness of the Word. Psalm 19, verse 10 tells us. And the Word itself is this bread that now can be dipped in the oil of the Holy Spirit. Cheryl knows this. One of my favorite things, snack-wise, is bread and good virgin olive oil. I could eat that all day long. And it contributed to past weight issues. Bread and olive oil, just so good. And, And he describes this this word, the bread, dipped in the oil. That's, dang, that's how we study the word. Do you realize that? That we dip the bread in the oil. That if you want to understand the word of God, you don't just read the bread. After a while it gets kind of dry. And you need something to go with it, you know. If you're just trying to study it 
And there are a lot of theologians out there who just study the word and it's dry and they carve it up and they cut it down and they make it say what they think it should say. And then there are those who take the word of God and they dip it in the oil of the spirit. They say, Holy Spirit, I need you to teach me your word. Holy Spirit, open my heart to your word. Holy Spirit of the living Christ, help me to understand what you have here in your word. It makes all the difference. And I'm talking about when you're home studying the Word on your own. I've shared before, A.W. Tozer used to study anything he studied, he studied on his knees. If he was studying Shakespeare, he got down on his knees and he said, Holy Spirit, teach me what this means. I, I would do the same thing with Shakespeare because that's a little difficult. If you're studying the Word of God, Tozer would get on his knees and say, Holy Spirit, teach me your Word. Dipping the bread in the oil. Well, this beautiful queen, this princess bride has been now, verse 13 tells us, advanced to royalty. Verse 14 tells us, then your fame went forth among the nations. And understand why. This is the key. The Lord says, I bathed, I anointed, I sandaled, I clothed, I adorned. You ate my fine flour, honey, and oil, and I advanced you. And historically speaking, that's exactly what happened with Israel. Think about this. Israel was a small kingdom with extremely limited resources. Of all the locations in the Middle East, the resources of Israel were somewhat limited and the space that God gave them there right by between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Now, originally he gave them far more than they settled. But once settled and once they were in the land, this was not a huge conquest. This wasn't like mighty Babylon or massive Assyria. There are some of the other great nations that would come along in history. And yet God took tiny Israel and lifted it up, advanced it far beyond what it possibly could ever have become on its own. Kings and queens from around the world came to Israel to see its splendor. The Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10 tells us, came and was just astounded. She had heard about the glory of Solomon the fame of this beautiful city and the riches there, she came and saw with her own eyes, blew her away. Hiram, the king of Tyre, came down. We're told also in 1 Kings chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 9, Hiram shows up and he's blown away. And he says, how can I help you know, build this up even more? Hiram provides all the cedar, all the wood for David's palace. He's so impressed. Kings and queens... Impressed, And it is all on account of a loving God, the splendor, the majesty of Jerusalem that should not have been. But God said, I advanced you. I made you beautiful. And your fame went forth among all the nations. Do you see that's how it's supposed to work in our lives? We are not supposed to work ourselves up to the place where we are the ideal Christian and then we can tell others how to do it. It's never about us. It will never be about us. And in fact, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize it's not about you. The longer you walk with Him, the more Him you long to see. And the more of Him you would rather be seen than you. Because it's all Him. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So it's all on account of his splendor, he says, my splendor which I bestowed upon you. 
And again, this whole thing underscores what we talked about on Sunday. The value is in the vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ. That's where the value is. And our call is to be connected simply to Him. Value is never in the chosen, it is always in the chooser. The value is not in the branches, but in the true vine. And here the value is not in the adored wife. Oh, she's beautiful. She's clean, she's purified, she's dressed, she's jeweled. She's crowned with a beautiful crown. All of that comes from Him. And the glory is His. And she just reveals that. So what went wrong? Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. Number three in your notes, if you will jot it down, we go from the abandoned wife to the adored wife, now to the adulterous whore. I know some are thinking, Rick, I wish you would use the word prostitute or perhaps harlot. That would be a little better because the word whore is so brash and brutish and harsh sounding. But you know what? I went over this in my mind and in prayer today. And I asked the Lord again, should I find another word? But it best describes the language that is being used here. And if we were to read this in the Hebrew, I believe we would see that it's sana. Sana. Or the plural form is sanunim, and it means fornication for funds. Sex for money. It's a whore. And the word is chosen and used, and it's rough, but God uses this word 16 times in Ezekiel 16. In fact, He uses the word for Israel here more in this chapter alone than anywhere else in Scripture. And then we'll see it again when we come to Ezekiel chapter 23. He'll use it 14 times there, but 16 times here. He is making a point. It's a brutal point, but listen to it. And if you have a weak stomach, just hang in there. You took some of your clothes. Remember the clothes that he gave her? The embroidered cloth and the silk and the fine linen. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places on various, of various colors and played the harlot on them which should never come about, nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels, made of, note this, my gold, and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth, and you covered them, and you offered my oil, and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you. You would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? Oh, I know some of that goes on in the land, but really, is it that big a deal? I go to temple. I know my neighbor's into that idolatry stuff. But you know, when we go to temple together, and that's fine. We all worship the same God. It should be okay what they do. You know, I'm not going to judge anyone. God says, is this so small a matter? Verse 21, you slaughtered my children. 
and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Child sacrifice. Well, the Amorites and the Hittites did that, you know, Grandma and Grandpapa, but not you. And they're doing exactly what mother and father did. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Did you forget about that? When you were vulnerable and susceptible out in the middle of the field and I found you and said, you lived, you don't remember that, he says. Verse 23, and then it came about after all your wickedness, and note this, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. He's getting upset even in the telling of this story. In the middle of this story, it's as though though the Spirit of the Lord through the prophet Ezekiel blurts out, woe to you. I can't even believe what I'm saying here. Can't even believe what I'm telling you. What I'm describing that you've done, it came about after all your wickedness that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. And it gets worse. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. That is Egypt to the south. Behold now, I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations, and I delivered you up to the desires of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines to the west, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Oh, that's amazing. A pagan nation is ashamed of the people of Israel. That's how bad it got. Moreover, verse 28, you played the harlot with the Assyrians to the north. Because you were not satisfied, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. And you also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, that would be to the east. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. Do you see what God is describing? The people went a-whoring north, south, east, and west. Any direction they could go with anyone who would pass by. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square and disdaining money, you are not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Wait a minute, but he said you were not like a harlot, but he's been calling her a harlot. What does he mean by that? Read on. Verse 33, men give gifts to all harlots, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Here's where Israel was worse than all the other harloting nations around. Israel said, hey, we'll pay you to come and be with us. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, prostitution, as I understand it, the prostitute is prostituting herself to receive money. God says, you're prostituting yourself and you're saying, hey, I'll pay you for me to do it. Thus you are different, verse 34, from those women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given you. Thus you are different. He's talking historically about tribute. 
that the people of Israel are now paying tribute. They're paying tribute to Egypt. They pay tribute to the Assyrians. They pay tribute to the Babylonians. They're paying tribute to the pagan nations rather than trusting in the Lord God. And I am so thankful that none of us pay tribute rather than trusting the Lord. He says, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and they will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords." They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And then I will stop you from playing the harlot. And you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you and my jealousy will depart from you and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth but have enraged me. By all these things, behold, I in turn will bring down, will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. I know of no other passage in the Hebrew Scriptures where the Lord is more angry, where He is more enraged or more furious than He is right here in Ezekiel 16. And it's stunning because it, because it comes right on the heels of the princess bride. Of the description of how much he loved her. It, it, it would be like, well, it's like reading the Song of Songs and then going directly into Lamentations. It's just, it's shocking how this turned a corner here. The doting husband is now nearly beside himself with anger. And the picture throughout the chapter of their harlotry, of their whoring, sana, sanunim, is intentional. Because Israel's sin is purposely portrayed in terms of sexual immorality. And we've talked a little bit about this, that idolatry and sexual immorality go hand in hand. That to commit the one is to commit the other. And please understand that. To commit idolatry is to commit sexual immorality. But brothers and sisters, in our culture, to commit sexual immorality is to commit idolatry. In the Lord's eyes, they are one and the same. They are connected. What do you mean? It's trading out beauty and clothing and food and the splendor of God for the lust of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, do not, love the things, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You can test any desire you have. Test anything. And if it is 
lusty, if it's the lust of the flesh or the eyes, or, the, or if, it's, if it's prideful, it's not from the Father. It is not His desire. The desires of the Father are not like that. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. When we see the fury of God's anger over Israel's past whoring, how do we think Christianity will fare? If we embrace the same idolatry in today's culture that the people of Israel embraced in their culture, why do we think we'll get off any better? Why does the church play the games with sexual immorality that the church plays? Why are we so okay with so so many immoralities that are going on? Sexual immorality is the picture of idolatry because it elevates the flesh above the spirit. So in our case, sex outside of marriage, which is a broad brush. Sex outside of marriage. Any sexual relationship outside of the covenant marriage relationship of one man with one woman, be it fornication, uh, be it premarital sex, be it homosexuality, uh, be it adultery, any of it, all of it, is elevating flesh above the Spirit. And God calls that idolatry. It's the same thing. It is the sin wherein the flesh and the Spirit do the most serious battle. It is the sin that is directly against, if you're a believer, it is against the temple of the Spirit of God. This body is a holy temple because this body houses the abiding presence of Jesus Christ. So does your body. If you are a believer, a follower of His, your body's a temple, right? We know that. And Scripture is so clear. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee immorality, pornea, sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? It is not just some kind of sexual sin, but oh, God will wink at that. No, it's idolatry. Because it's against the temple. And it's elevating flesh above spirit. Ephesians 5.5 This you know with certainty that no sexually immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Colossians 3 verse 5 Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, all of which, Paul says, amounts to Idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't even know God. And it just so shocks me that in the church today... So many churches are just embracing sexually immoral living, saying, ah, we just don't want to judge. We don't want to speak a word against that lifestyle or this lifestyle or the other lifestyle. That's their own personal business. Just don't you know, bring it up at church. 
But it's idolatry. And Revelation 22.14 is very clear. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Do you see how they're connected? This harlotry and idolatry and immorality is all seen as the same by the Lord. Well, verse 44 going on, Behold, everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb concerning you, saying, Like mother, like daughter. Like Hittite, like Israelite. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and children. You are also the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. And now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters, and your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. And yet, you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they did. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Jerusalem has gone back to her roots. The Jewish people are doing no different than the Canaanites before them. In fact, they're doing Worse, They've gone the way of their sisters. He talks about Samaria, the older sister, probably because Samaria is larger in territory and north of there, and perhaps something to do with, with Samaria's past prior to Jerusalem raising up. Uh, he talks about the younger sister, Sodom, perhaps because of the smaller territory. But either way, some have tried to say, maybe you've heard this, Some have tried to say that verse 49 means the sin of Sodom really had nothing to do with sexual immorality but just a lack of social justice. Have you heard that? I mean, that that is part of the social gospel and part of the teaching is, oh, see, see what God says through Ezekiel. Now we understand. It wasn't homosexuality. It wasn't perversity. It wasn't the lewdness of the of the Sodomites and those of Gomorrah. That that wasn't why he judged them. No, 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 it was because they didn't help the poor. They weren't all signed up for Compassion International. That was the problem. And so God burned them out because, because they didn't have a social concern among them. The truth is, the reason behind Sodom's sinfulness is exactly the same as Israel's. Do a comparison. Look at verse 50. They were haughty and committed abominations before me. Go back and look at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You became proud of yourself. He says Sodom was at ease. They had abundant food. And they became arrogant. And that was the root then of the later immoralities which were abominations, which was sexual sin and which was abhorrent to the Father. 
And the whole reason why he points out that she did not help the poor and needy here is simply because they had no social conscience whatsoever because they were so sinfully self-centered. And it was abominable to the Lord. The Hebrew word for haughty there in verse 50 is gabah. And it means to exalt or to make tall. Specifically, it's a proud flaunting. It's flaunting our glory. It's flaunting our greatness. It's flaunting our right to do whatever we want to do. And true, Sodom had no social conscience. But that was just a symptom of the deeper problem, and that was this deep self-centeredness and intense sinful lifestyle. Verse 51, Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. Have you heard that before? Sodom appears more righteous than Jerusalem. says verse 52 also bear your disgrace and that you have made judgment favorable for your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they they are more in the right than you yes be also ashamed and bear your disgrace in that you made your sisters appear more righteous why is that is it because Jerusalem invented ways to sin that Sodom and Samaria hadn't no it's because Jerusalem had so much more privilege It's because Jerusalem had the temple. I mean, Jerusalem had the priesthood. Israel had the connection with God. They had all that God had to offer. If anyone should have been faithful as a wife to a husband, it should have been the people of Israel. It should have been the Jews. Far more than the Sodomites, because they didn't know. I mean, they knew what they were doing because of the conscience of man, but they didn't have the law. They didn't have the beauty of a relationship with God laid out before them. And he said, you knew better. Any of you parents ever say that to your older kids? Why am I being busted? He did it too. Yeah, but you knew what you were doing. It's kind of like Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And both sinned. But I would say to you, Adam's is worse because Adam knew. And in this case, Israel's was worse because they were so much more privileged. They are the prince's bride bathed in water, anointed with oil, covered with the beautiful clothing and the sandals and adorned and crowned and all the rest. They knew. And so their sin is far worse. You hear, by the way, the same astonishment coming from the Apostle Paul. You may recall this. Let me just read this to you. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And listen to what he says. He says, To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying they had it all. And they've rejected 
Christ, my kinsmen. I wish I could die for them. I wish, Paul says, I could lose my salvation if it would save them. Because they had everything. And so did Israel. So did Jerusalem. They had the washings, the anointings, the clothing, the adornments, the feeding. They had every reason to believe in their coming Messiah, but they rejected Him. Every reason to be the princess bride of Yahweh, but instead they chose to be the adulterous whore. Now pause for a moment and consider how like the rest of us is Israel. How much are we like they, or have we been? You see how Paul can say that they're an example for us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul's voice rings out loud and clear, and I wish more could hear it. We need to look at what happened to them so that we can know how to live now. Rick, why would any church spend ten years studying through the Old Testament? We're taking Paul's lead. We need to see this example. Come to understand the grace and the glory and the righteousness of God. And by the way, America has far, in my opinion, exceeded Jerusalem in our idolatry and our sexual immorality. We are far worse. Well, how can you say that? Well, John, I got your email today about the, uh, uh, the what is the name of the Gazette in Colorado, right? The Greeley Gazette. The Greeley Gazette posted this article that says that now that things basically, I'll just sum it up for you, now that things are becoming more normalized for homosexuals in our country, now that that's the new normal, the call is going out to accept and normalize pedophilia. And in fact, the uh, American Psychiatric Association has a new name for pedophiles, child molesters. Their new name is Minor Attracted People. No, I can never go there. Hey, 30 years ago, who would have thought we'd be where we are right now? Billy Graham, you know the old quote, if God does not judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We are far worse. What, what is the primary issue beyond or behind all of this? All of this whoring of Israel and even what we see today in our culture. What's, what's the issue? Is there something that stands out? And I believe there is. Go back and look at verse 30. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot... Remember what we said at the beginning? The heart of Israel is Jerusalem. It is today, it is the heart of the nation. It's not Tel Aviv. You know, that's where our embassy is, but the capital is Jerusalem. It's the heart of the Jewish people. But according to the Lord here, the reason why the princess bride fell into the adulterous whore is because her heart began to languish. And continue to languish because of the behavior. Immorality and idolatrous behavior causes the heart to languish. This Hebrew word here for languish, amal, means to make feeble 
exhausted, or listen to this, weak-willed. And I would say that's what defines many denominational churches today. Weak-willed. It's not they don't want to do what's right. It's just hard. It's difficult. You know, to tell certain people that their behavior is not okay. Uh, and the heart begins to languish because of the sin in our own lives. Our will begins to weaken. We become exhausted. I read uh, just yesterday in U.S. News and World Report that skipping breakfast is linked to heart problems. It is, apparently. A 16-year-long study of 2,700 uh, 27,000 men suggest that eating breakfast is good for the heart. Now, I don't know if that applies to you know greasy eggs and syrupy pancakes and fat sizzling bacon. I'm hoping it does. But the point is that if you are skipping it, you begin to later on in the day when you finally do take a meal, your heart is having to work harder up until that point. And so they say it's better when you wake up that you have a healthy breakfast so that the heart has the kind of nutrition that it needs to do its work. And so they've linked these two. And there is a link between the immorality in America and the heart in America. See, the heart is getting weak, gang. And so the immorality goes on the increase because the heart is not what it was. When this country was founded, the heart was after God. And I've said before, I know it wasn't perfect 200 years ago. And I know our fathers sinned just as we do. But the desire was stated clearly that we would be a nation after God. That we would have a heart after God. But when all that stops, the heart starts to languish. Then it gets weakened. And it can't stand up anymore for righteousness and, and, and what's true. And so what do we see? We see hatred. We see crime. Terrorism, disease, greed, selfishness, disobedience to parents. We see it going on and on and on because the heart of the nation, and I fear in some places the heart of the church, is languishing. Our immorality is weakening our hearts and our hearts is increasing our immorality, our idolatry. We need healing. We need transformation. We need redemption. Where are we going to get that? Well, for 52 verses, the Lord has laid out in brutally honest terms the depiction of the sad state of Israel, the abandoned waif who became the adored wife for a time but chose to go off as the adulterous whore. But now he says something that's even more astounding than he has said across these 52 verses. Verse 53, he says, Nevertheless... But wait, what? What? Nevertheless, I will restore their captivity. Or literally, I will restore you from, restore them from their captivity. The captivity of Sodom and her daughters. The captivity of Samaria and her daughters. And along with them, your own captivity. In order that you may bear your humiliation and feel ashamed for all that you have done when you become a consolation to them. And you might want to add this into your list. Number four, suddenly we come to the absolved wife. The absolved wife. The healed. The transformed. The restored. 
But it's in this order. Sodom first, and Samaria, and then Jerusalem will be restored. Sodom and Samaria are restored first. Okay, three questions that immediately jump up in these two verses for me. When, how, and why? Right? Number one, when, when is this that he's talking about? What is this restoration? You will see clearly it's the millennial kingdom. It is the great kingdom yet to come. That's when. How? How is this even possible after all of this whoring? That he could even use the word nevertheless. And the answer is very simple. Grace is huge. The grace of God is absolutely massive. You might say, yeah, but wasn't Sodom destroyed? Off the face of the earth? Here's grace for you. The land that was once Sodom will be inhabited again in the kingdom. And it will be glorious. Yeah, but how can there be that restoration? There may yet be living on planet Earth some of the offspring of Sodom. How? Zoar, the next city over, was spared. You don't think that there were people living in Zoar who were related to people living in Sodom? God's going to restore Sodom by His grace. By faith in His grace. Please don't misunderstand. I am not sending out a universal message Not a universal salvation, a universal invitation, but not salvation. This will be by faith, but Sodom will be restored. Samaria will be restored. Why? When is the kingdom? How is grace? Why does he say Sodom and Samaria are restored first? Read on in verse 55. Your sister's Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to their former state and you with your daughters will also return to your former state. Speaking of their glory days as the name of your sister Sodom was not heard from your lips in your day of pride, before your wickedness was uncovered, so now you have become the reproach of the daughters of Edom and all who are around her, of the daughters of the Philistines, those surrounding you who despise you. You have borne the penalty of your lewdness and abominations, the Lord declares. For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. I am going to let you, God says, I'm going to let you feel the full weight of covenant breaking. I'm going to let you go through this. And Sodom and Samaria are restored first so that Jerusalem, according to verse 54, will bear her humiliation and feel ashamed for all that she has done. You see, as the consequence, as the result of their sin becomes seen, becomes visible to all, they have to go through the humiliation. They have to bear the shame. This is what psychology in America does not understand. You've got to feel the guilt. Skip over the guilt and you will never get to the healing. Because the guilt will always be there. You've got to go through it. You've got to recognize the shame of past sins. It's what we ended with last week, remember? Until you get to the point that you're mourning over your sin, you don't fully grasp grace. You've got to go through this, the Lord says. You have to bear your humiliation, and you have to feel this shame. Why again? So that when the grace comes, listen, no one can boast. 
Ephesians 2.8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. Not even an iota. What this means is in the coming kingdom, there's not going to be a single person standing who doesn't know that there's one reason they're there and one reason alone, and it's grace. There will not be a single person who says, yeah, I was bad, but not as bad as Sarah. I was bad, but I didn't make jokes about my pastor like Josiah did. Well, I'm not really Josiah's pastor, just his possible future father-in-law. I didn't do quite as much as he did. I was bad. I needed forgiveness, but not like... No one's going to say that. Not a person. No one will boast. We will all say, no, 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 I shouldn't be here. I'm glad you're here. I should not be here. Praise the Lord I'm here. Because I don't deserve this. The restoration of the coming kingdom is going to be so completely one-sided, nobody will say, look what we did. Nobody's going to go back to the position of the bride who trusted in her beauty. You see, grace doesn't do that. Grace, though it clothes us, though it bejewels us, though it crowns us, though it it feeds us, and all of this, grace never leaves us going, I look sharp. You know, I really look good. Check me out. That's not what grace does. Grace always leaves us feeling one thing, thankful. But never boastful. It is the sole exertion of the will of God by faith in His grace through Jesus Christ that will usher us into the kingdom. And Jerusalem will itself be a consolation for Samaria and Sodom. And I think for the entire world because of the redemption that even Jerusalem after all this, the redemption they will have in Christ. You know what? If God doesn't save all of Israel as Paul says in Romans 11, then the plan is just shy of amazing grace. But the salvation of Israel And the fact that in the coming kingdom, the Jewish people will be there. The kingdom promised to them will thrive. And Jerusalem will be lifted up, will be a testimony to the entire world of the utter grace of God to the ends of the earth. Listen to what Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses spoke these words, prophetic words, astounding words, even in light of what we've read tonight. So it shall be, he says, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Listen, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your descendants 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And I guarantee you no one's heart is going to be languishing when the kingdom opens on that glorious day. The heart that loves the Lord. That's the key. Love Him and you will live. Clear enough? Now, just in case anyone missed it, the Lord offers one more nevertheless. As if the first nevertheless wasn't enough, He says, Nevertheless, I will remember My covenant with you in the days of your youth. By the way, back in, where is it? Verse, oh yeah, 59. You despise the oath by breaking the covenant. That is the Mosaic covenant. Because that's the only covenant they could break. Right? That was the only one that was entered into God and the people, the people and God. They broke that covenant. But now the Lord says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you. This is not the Mosaic covenant. This is again the Abrahamic covenant. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. What were the days of Israel's youth? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The original, unconditional covenant. And then verse 61, you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older sister and your younger. But I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. And right there, replacement theology dies. Not because of your covenant. I'm not doing any of this. Because if your replacement theology says the Jews broke the Mosaic Covenant, therefore God is free to cast them out. God says it has nothing to do with your covenant. Not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish, verse 62, my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed, and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. Israel will never again open their mouths because of their humiliation. Neither will we. You know what we'll open our mouths for? Worship, praise, thanksgiving. Throughout all eternity, Psalm 51.15, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Psalm 109, verse 30, With my mouth I will give thanks abundantly to the Lord, and in the midst of many I will praise Him. Father, we come to the end of this story more amazed than in the whole section about the Princess Bride. For more beautiful, Lord, than any of the adornments more pure than the washings and the anointing. More lovely, Father, than the clothing and the jewels. More sustaining than the food is the truth of Your grace. Your grace in Jesus, whose blood was poured out for us, whose life was spent for us. And we praise and glorify Your name now as we know we will then. And we thank You that by Your grace we no longer bear the humiliation and the shame of our sin. But we bear on our lips the praise of all Your people which is due Your name. And may we stay in the love story. In Jesus' name, Amen.